most likely nothing will come of your artistic endeavors, Anise. Welcome to We Can't Print This, a podcast telling the story you don't know behind the story you do. Ooh, my name is Fiona McCann. And I'm Eden Don. And every week we interview a writer of some kind about the stories behind their stories. Now, please do us a favor, tell a friend or sign up for our newsletter if you like this podcast. And you can also support us on patreon.com forward slash we can't print this. This week, our guest is Anise Mojgani, the current poet laureate of Oregon who is also a two-time individual champion of the National Poetry Slam and winner of the International World Cup Poetry Slam. Mm -hmm. He has done commissions for the Getty Museum and the Peabody Essex Museum, and his work has appeared on HBO, NPR, New York Times, everywhere. He also, each summer, has these beautiful evenings called Poems at Sunset Out a Window, which we will get into more in this episode the, the crux of that is really about him bringing poets and community together, which I love so much as an overarching theme for this episode. Yeah, and I think community is so important for writers in, for so many reasons. I think it can be such a solitary activity, and sometimes it feels like you're writing into a void. And there are many ways to build community or find community, which I think are kind of important for writers. I do too. I mean, one example of that is Fiona and I are in a building that is full of writers, that we were the yes. first people in this building to get it going and trying to bring other writers in because all of these people were working from home, including us, and it is so lonely. And now we have lunch together and we share work ideas. And it was really important and has changed all of our output of work because I think it's good for writers to be with other writers. Totally. And it's not just because you need company per se, but you also need to be around people who are doing the same kind of work and who understand the same pressures. And it just feels now that there's kind of ideas fizzing all over the place and you'll, yeah. you know, people will share advice, ideas, thoughts, events coming up. They'd be like, oh, I'm going to this reading tonight. Did you know about it? Here we go. And Inspiration. All of those like we all sat around talking as a bunch of former journalists, how everybody wanted to write different stories on cults, because that's what all journalists want to write about is stories about cults. <laughs> stories on cults. Don't steal this idea. We're all doing it. We're going to have a whole book, stories on cults. I do think, I mean, there are other ways as well. You may not be able to build, bring a whole building together, but wherever you are as a writer, I think it's just good to be in community with other writers, find out where there are readings, find out if there's a writer's group near you. And if there isn't, maybe start your own. It really, Anise's example is so good where he literally tells poems out his window at sunset. And it brings people together in this lovely way. And it is a simple thought and one that has really changed things. And I would encourage writers to do the same and what is ever your skill set is, what can you do to bring community together? Okay, on with the episode. Let's do it. Don't you love Betsy and Aya? You know I do. And in fact, anyone who knows me knows that I spend 99.999% of my life in their earrings and have not one, not two, but three of their signature bridge-inspired cuffs. And it's all designed and made here in Portland. I've been writing about and wearing Betsy and Aya's Ready to Wear collection since they started in 2008. And I love it. And now they also make gorgeous fine jewelry, including custom pieces like the Leo Constellation wedding rings Betsy designed for my husband and I. It's gorgeous. 
And now you can support both our podcast and this rad family business by shopping with them through our special fancy link, betsyanaya.com forward slash we can print this. Use that special URL to automatically get 11% off your order of ready to wear, but do not sleep on that fine jewelry either because it is good. Anise, I have a question for you. Yes, yes. <laughs> How does one become a poet? Because <laughs> I feel like my career guidance teacher did not have that on the list. She was like, public relations, no poetry. No, even Seamus Heaney was a teacher first. Like, how do you end up in a situation where you were a full-time poet? And I know it's not end up, by the way. Obviously, there was some agency there. You're like, it just happened to me. Just happened to me one day. Um, I was walking down the street, and they're like, you're the poet laureate. Yeah. Well, that's it. You're the poet laureate. I mean, you re- you're the poet laureate for the state of Oregon. How how did you end up here? Um, So, I'll try to n- not have this be too meandering, but like... um. Don't I mean, be shy of an El Meander. <laughs> I, I, I'd gone to school for for visual arts. I'd gone to school to study comic book illustration. Oh, you're and one of those multi-talented artists. I hate that. It's annoying. God, God get could out. you just be good at one thing? <laughs> and <laughs> I was in school then and having a conversation with self of like, most likely nothing will come of your artistic endeavors in East. If this is the path that you're on, there's the very large likelihood that you will probably work a job that you like do not necessarily enjoy. Are you okay with that? You know? And um if I was <laughs> if I was an older, wiser person, perhaps I wouldn't have been okay with it. But I was like, yeah, I'm I'm fine like, you know, working whatever shit job so long as like I'm able to like make whatever I want to. Like when I'm not punching the clock. Um and so I, I think like you know, and I mentioned that because I think it, that was like a thing that sort of just like then put me in the mindset that like, all right, well, I'm not beholden to doing the thing that I'm supposed to do. I'm not beholden to doing the thing that's like going to ensure that my rent is paid and you have my health care, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, like th- th- those things, yeah. like it's great if those things fall into place, but those aren't the things that like that I'm shooting for. Like I'm shooting for something else. And the other things just support whatever this artistic endeavor is. And so when when I was done with school, the thing that I was like just curious about at that time was my relationship to poems, um, to writing them, to performing them. And so I, I just kind of set myself in that direction. Like I was like, oh, I got friends in New York. I love New York. New York also has like a really thriving spoken word and poetry slam community. I want to go live in a city where I can like go to a poetry slam every single week. And so that's what I did. And I went there and it was like probably sometime like around that time where, you know, realizing that there weren't many folks, but I knew of poets in the community that would get paid big checks of money for like doing poems at colleges, you know? And I was like, I don't know how one does that, but I know that it exists. So maybe if I just like, keep doing poems. Maybe I'll end up there. And so I kept doing poems and uh, kept doing poems. And at some point I had um, won the National Poetry Slam and it placed me like... I just dropped that one in. At one point I had just, sorry, won the National Poetry Slam. One point I became Miss America (laughs) and... uh, (laughs) And So so once once I was Miss America, I, um, uh, it, it, you know, had this... Gave me sort of like 
this this extra bit of confidence of like, oh, well, perhaps I'm doing something right, and perhaps there is something that else that could happen with this. And around that time, a young poet who was in college was like, yo, can you come to my school? And so he invited me to his school, and it was at the same time like somebody else had invited me and some other poets to to their school, and. The school thing was happening. It was happening. And it was like one of those things where I, like I was working at, in the catering department at the zoo here in town and at Random Order Coffee Shop on Alberta. Mm. And Great pie. Like, Great pie. Really good. It's gone now though, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, sorry. So sad. But I was like, oh, well, let me just, let me leave this job for like a month and see what happens. Did those gigs and then other gigs started popping up, and it was like, oh, well, if I can do this for, you know, six months, then maybe I can do it for a year. And I did it for a year, and I was like, well, if I do it for a year, then maybe I can do it until I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. Um, and so that was... Maybe they'll make me the poet that. laureate. And maybe I they'll make know. me the poet laureate of this Miss state. Universe. Miss Universe. <laughs> Let's talk about the new book. This was written, I mean, mostly over the last, like, six months, I guess. Um, but it's a very much a kind of like a new book that's speaking to sort of like the particular chapter of this last year in my life, but connected to to very previous things. So there's like some poems in there that are older, but for the most part, it's like all from 2022. Bit, for the 20. most part. And wh- how do you describe that recent chapter? Um, well, I mean, the book itself, I, I, I tell folks that the book is about love. Oh, um, that's my favorite. <laughs> And during during the pandemic, I found myself, I'd say to folks that like largely I was writing either poems about revolution or love poems. They belong together. Well, that's the thing. Like they, they basically just feel sort of like the same poem or seeking to do the same thing. But I don't know, like I found myself, like one of my, my, my close friends was like, oh, I love the idea of just a book of love poems. That just sounds really nice right now. And... What was interesting, I, I was like, you know, that does sound really nice. And I would go to Pals and just sort of to kind of see what perhaps books of love poems existed. And they didn't really. Like, it, like there weren't books that I could find from contemporary, like contemporary collections that were just like, here's a book of love poems. You right. know? Really? Like, right. Here's, here's, a, here's an Elizabeth Browning book of, of love poems. Right, Pablo you know? Neruda. Exactly. Or, yeah. you or know, your but, sonnets. Yeah, but 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 not really. Now, are, were you in love at the time? I was in love, but it, I was heartbroken. Oh. It was like, you know, it, I, I like 2022 was a year that was more so the first half was just like kind of rough on my heart. And, and so by I that token. I do hate that. <laughs> Why does heartbreak make work so good? <laughs> but then whenever I'm heartbroken, I try to console myself and be like, I'm going to make something real good now. <laughs> and then when things are going really well in my life, I'm like, fuck, can I not create stuff now? Yeah. I don't know. But I just feel like, doesn't it seem to be the case? Do you think that any love poems are ever written of people just being in love I simply? Think so. I mean, like, I think historically, I I tend to often write from a place of, of love and when I'm in like there's there's plenty of poems in here that are like written in love um and like the book itself I think like isn't so much about heartbreak like there's not there's 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 some um moments where it it nods to that but really I think like you know what is heartbreak doing but 
revealing that which in us has been like shaped and carved by that love mm-hmm. and that shaping and carving a love of love is is ultimately i think like how we learn to um to fill that space whether it's like with somebody else right but ideally like it's not filling that space inside of ourselves with somebody else but like what are we filling in ourselves with ourselves and so you know whatever love that is uh transpiring with another person is ultimately like an opportunity for me to you know just like increase my capacity of love for myself mm-hmm. and like by increasing that capacity of love for myself and better understanding myself i'm then able to love other people more fruitfully and more successfully and more wholly um, you have to be so open to that though i think sometimes there's a danger that it it almost carves a smaller space in your heart if you're not really careful. A hundred percent, you know, because it's like, it's like you're on a path and you come to a fork in the road and there's a sign that says, this way to the pit of despair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and this away way, we skip. away from the pit of despair, you know, <laughs> and both arrive you on the other side of the field at the same, back of the same place. And it's like, well, I guess I'm going by the pit of despair, you know? <laughs> and like, and not only am I just going by the pit of despair, but then I'm like, hanging out on the bridge and just sort of like staring into the pit. And it's like, at least you can, you don't have to stay here. Even though there's this aspect of mining my grief at times to create something, that that thing that I end up creating ends up being something that like serves me and is not something that like makes me feel worse for having like engaged with it in this manner, you know? And it's not like you're inviting terrible things to happen in order to create great art. Exactly. Either. You know, you know no. what I mean? <laughs> like, don't. You know, there's, I, I, it's funny, you know, I think about like when I was younger, there was definitely like this like aspect of like, ah, oh, kind of wish like, like I wouldn't like seek it out. But there was yeah. this thought of like, man, if only something like interesting would happen. Even if that interesting thing was like horrible, then I could like make art from such and it's you know i think that there is like at times it's like weird wrestling when one is seeking to create things like how do we like like you were saying like about how how do one does one create things when one is not in a place of like pain you know and um and i think that like it's totally doable uh, again like so much of my work stays present um trying to um uh to be connected to, to to not simply the woe. Um, if it's carrying sadness in there, is also carrying humor and brevity in it. And if there's like brevity and joy in it, that there's also like moments that are being stuck in there or snuck in there that's like, oh, hold this, but also don't forget that there's also these other things that are existing at the same time. Fully realized, jokes. fully realized humans. Yeah. We're all the things. We're and sad and we crack horrible jokes in our <laughs> deepest moments of sadness and like to cope. Sorry, I just have to say before we move on, I have to confess that in the like fifth grade, I was deeply obsessed with the idea of getting kidnapped because I thought it would give me like really good stories to tell. I thought I would be like on TV and I was like, I could probably make a career out of it. (laughs) I'd be like the girl who was kidnapped and I escaped and then like just thought I didn't want anything bad to happen to me. I just, I guess, wanted some people to put me in a van, feed me candy and then like let me loose and then I would get to tell the tale. And that's, I'm so sorry you never got kidnapped. <laughs> I'm in my early 40s. Do you think it's too late? It's not, it's never too late it's to get kidnapped. Thank you. It's never too late to get I kidnapped. I hydrate very well, <laughs> moisturize. I look so young. It's uh, true though. And I, I think, um, I mean, I definitely relate to obviously looking for some drama when one was younger and feeling like I live in such 
a boring time also. And now I'm like, it's a little bit too interesting now. I've missed boring. Global, <laughs> yeah, global <laughs> pandemics. Um, uh, but I also... Circles of fire. I think when I hear you talking about that, I think it's worth considering like people's whole body of work. I mean, I, often when I think of people writing out of pain, there's this poet, Jared Manley Hopkins, who wrote these really despairing poems. Mm -hmm. So full of pain. Actually, they kind of bothered me when I was younger because he wrote them in Dublin and I somehow took grave offense at that. But anyway, he also wrote some poems of exquisite joy. And yeah. although you may not find both things together in one actual poem, in the body of his work, you can see the sort of vicissitudes of emotional range. It's not like he was marred in despair forever, although I will forever associate him with that, to be honest. Well, I mean, like, you know, that's the thing, like, when I was younger, I, I the, one of the writers that I read a lot of was Charles Bukowski, and uh, you know, there's a writer that is a lot of problematic aspects, like to both him and his writing. Um, but I think that like there's an aspect to, as I read more and more and more, what I thought was really beautiful was that that aspect that here was this writer who really kind of despised humanity, but like if one just started reading more and more and more of this body of work, you saw, got to bear witness to this like journey of a person who went from being miserable and hating people to like breaking open with more and more love and more joy. And yeah. uh, so there, there is something always, I think like really, really lovely and special about getting to, to look at a body of work of a person. You know? You're the and first boy ever who has brought up liking Bukowski that hasn't given me red flags. <laughs> yeah. I have to say that I did my whole life is always like the boy, uh, the 100%. angsty punk boys at a party who are quoting Bukowski. And I was like, because mm, that's like, <laughs> that's the thing. Thing. <laughs> it's like, I recognize that. And, oh, here's this poem of his, you know, he's, he's writing about loving this, this piece of music from Brahms. Okay. But then you just start seeing more and more poems like that. And I was like, this is kind of wild to just sort of like, just look at it as an experiment of looking at a person's life. That's kind of rad. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm glad you brought it back to love as well, because I feel like that's where we started. And then suddenly we were all in the pits of despair. And we just talked about <laughs> sadness for so long. I and I'm mean, like, wait, we this book it. was love poems. Whatever happened to the love? Uh, okay, I want to hear it. The love is gone. Love. <laughs> well, let's see. Um, even though this book, like, you know, I think is one that's birthed out of heartbreak. Like it's it's not really about heartbreak. It's just like about how do how do I learn to love better? You know, essentially. Mm. Um, let's see what. I love the sound of a page turning. I know. Isn't that a good sound? It is a really good sound. I'll read this one. It's called "It Was a Tuesday." I spilled like a pitcher of morning sun tipping over into what had been night. Had risen at six and was at the convention center by sunup, 8 a.m., said poems into a ballroom on East Chavez, and before nine, walked out the building's marble steps into the rest of the day. Watched Apollo break plates over downtown Austin and pour into Lady Bird. I used to live here, kissed the river with her and our bicycles. Off my shirt picked the ladybugs. While here, I dropped off divorce papers at the house where she was staying. Kristen drove me there, said to me in the front seat, Homie, if you need to rub your junk all over those papers before putting them in the mailbox, no judgment. 
Kristen squealed the tires when we left, under the whispering sky too blue to speak of, ate burgers, in the sunlight blood was wiped from my chin. Later, I night-biked through my old neighborhood, passing the amber porch at Annie's. I came upon a Halloween party overflowing with lights and bodies, both with their ochre filaments glowing like joyful soil in a repurposed urn. Off the porch we spilled, now like evening sun, all of us did, flooded our dusk into the night like witches' grins we paraded through the thin streets, found ourselves outside the Oakwood Cemetery almost midnight, and the moon an unstruck nickel broke into the graveyard, broke back out by kissing my chest to the bottom of the chain-link fence, squeezed out through the space between its teeth and the ground, just did what I had to do to move my body back out the death yard, smelled honey, counted pretty teeth, scraped cloth but no skin, and out of the dark dirt pulled a rain lily. The Texas and October earth was rich with them. Mm. Whoa. I love it. Also, oh, thank you. Kristen's a good friend. Kristen is a good friend. <laughs> Kristen is is one of the the best humans that I've had the the gift of knowing in my life. Yeah, you can tell. Did you take her advice? No judgment. No I, judgment. I didn't. The, uh, <laughs> it was it was it was enough to 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 have the the suggestion yes. from her placed into the my the invitation heart. was <laughs> enough <laughs> to feel it. What what's interesting about that? In a way, that poem obviously takes place in a finite space of time, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and was that like a kind of choice where you're like, I'm going to write this poem from sunup to sunset? Um, I'm trying to remember if it was like, because usually like when I write, it's not me looking from the outside in and saying like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to like experiment with doing this. Yeah. Um, it's more that I've come across whatever it is has been thrown down onto the page and I start like moving it around. I remember it in that day itself. That's right. The, the poem, I think, got birthed out of something like I had posted like on Facebook or Twitter, something that was like, uh, you know, just kind of like these bullet points of the day and was making note within that, oh, I had such a poet's day today. I woke up and I did these poems. Like I was awake before the sun came up, said these poems into this ballroom for this like some business conference got divorced wow. and was like yeah dropped off these divorce papers just wandered on my bicycle like stumbled into this party we broke Hot into a graveyard a and then like pulled up these flowers you know like it was it was just sort of like this observation of the day as a whole so there definitely was an aspect when whatever it was about that piece of writing or whatever writing I did afterwards that was in conversation with it that was drawn to oh I want to talk about this this day you know, that was like I mean, full. it's so on the nose that you were like dropping off divorce I know, papers. It's and all then the you're like, and now I'm going to crawl out of a cemetery. <laughs> I am living a poet's life where everything is an invitation to metaphor. A hundred percent. I'm like, know? well done, Anise. <laughs> Are you constantly just walking by like cemeteries or like, being like maybe. I don't know, delivery wards and stuff <laughs> and being like, I'm just going to place myself here for a sec. So that I, well, just I mean, see. like, you know, I think like one of the, the things that I love about metaphors is that they're just always yammering at us we're just plagued and surrounded by them that's something that i just love but writing that so i'm fascinated about how you write because i feel like my career as a writer has primarily been journalism which is going to clock in at a time and yeah. then being like this is the story i am i'm under deadline i need to interview these sources i need to track down this research but it's very job-like yeah and i don't 
but but I feel like I mean I know yours is serious and it's a job and you have an office and you go to your space <laughs> but when it's something like that when you have a day like that the next yeah. day do you wake up and you go I need to write all of these down because this is going to be a thing or do you do you wait for inspiration to strike? Are you forcing yourself to be cataloging your feelings as you go? How do you do it? it it's kind of a mix of all those. I tend to approach the act of writing as job-like. There was something that in Stephen King's book on writing, he says something about having this this specific time that you show up because then at least like the muse always knows where to find you. Mm-hmm, you should, mm-hmm. it, should it decide to join you, you know? Over the years, for me, it's been important for me to kind of like sculpt and shape some sort of schedule. And it's been in flux ever since 2020 when things kind of like... <laughs> Everything's in flux. Yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> and, but like, by and large, like, um, I like to sit somewhere um, outside of my house in the morning and be present with whatever's going to happen. And if that's like from scratch, then it's basically just sort of like me typing my fingers and seeing what what falls out, seeing how that conversation starts expanding outwards and then starting to see like, oh, well, what's the shape of this conversation? Is, is this speaking to something that is outside of the conversation? And if so, like, how do I bridge those things? The uh, way you talk about it is so interesting, though, because don't you feel like he speaks of it so much like you're an observer, though it's you? I, you feel It seems well, like you feel like you're a guest to oh, the writing yeah. process. Very, very much. Like, uh, that's, that's, that's such an interesting and wonderful way to put it, like being a guest to it and, um, and, a, and, and being an observer of, of oneself. Like, a thing that I love about writing is that I get to be the writer of a thing, but I also get to be its first reader. They're two different things. That just kind of fucked me up. I like that a lot. (laughs) You know that like... I do. I like that a lot. That's really great. I always feel it's such an honored position to be in when someone you care about lets you read their thing first. Mm. If Fiona's working on a thing or I'm doing anyone and they're like, would you read this thing and give me your thoughts? I always feel like it's such a special place. So when you're like, you get to be the first reader of it, I'm like, we're our first readers for ourselves. Exactly. <laughs> we're the honored guests and chosen ones for ourselves. A hundred percent. You know, I'm going to talk about so you in sweet. therapy this week. <laughs> yes. I'm going to talk about you in therapy this That's week. when you know you've made it. Exactly. Yeah. And so particularly as someone who reads or performs or shares my work to audiences in, in, in person, how I want them to engage with the work is how I want myself to engage with the work as a reader of it. And so if each time I pick it up, I'm reading it for the first time, then there are perhaps ways in which the poem will reveal itself to me in ways that it's never revealed itself to me. Well, and one of the things I think that you are so well known for is performing your poetry, right? And I mean, my introduction to poetry through Ancient dead poets. I never saw Emily Dickinson read, for example. Well, and you're not is, a true fan. Because <laughs> it's a matter of great regret to me. But it was so hard to get tickets. No, um, And so I only have interactions with her. When I think of Emily Dickinson, it's that interaction with the page, with the shape of the physical words on the page, with the voice in my head, mm-hmm. which is not Emily Dickinson's, or is it? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Yeah. Um, and yet you have this thing that you create, and then you put it on the page, and then you say it. Does it change what the art is in that moment? Does it change the poem? Does it change the work? I mean, like, 
I can only imagine that there is an aspect that it does. Yeah. You know, that over the years there's, you know, been folks that have come up to me and, uh, you know, said that they can now only read my work with my voice in, in their head. Me, Or that, me like, too. they, like, <laughs> you know, yeah. reading it isn't the same as hearing me say it. Um, so there's definitely, like, I think, like, at times a relationship to that specifically for folks. Um when I read your work, it's going to be Emily Dickinson's voice, just so you know. <laughs> that's the way, that's but the move. How did you learn your poetry voice? Because it is so distinct. I Look, love listening anyone, to you read your yeah. poems oh. so much. And well, thank I, you. It, it brings me such joy and such energy to it that really honestly made me appreciate poetry differently because I can hear the life yeah. in it. But you must, I mean, you do know that it changes how people feel about it or it makes people yes. feel a way to hear you. So how do you do that? At what point were you like, this is how I read poetry? <laughs> well, I mean, like, it's it's been an, an ongoing journey. Like, how I read it now feels pretty pretty rooted in the now. But I don't know, it might be different in five years. Because I know that it's different from how I read it when I was 20. And... Mm -hmm how I read it when I was 30. So there was, you know, and, and, and there were like specific points on that, that journey that sort of were me engaging with trying to understand how it was that I wanted to, to share work. When I was younger and first getting into reading my work aloud to people, there were a number of, like at that time, it was just sort of like, like the internet was such a baby. And so the only thing that I had in Savannah, Georgia, was like recordings off of a CD of poets, poets competing in, in Poetry Slam. And, and so, you know, that was like a big part of shaping and showing me how a person might do this. And so that kind of like filtered into like, oh, well, you know, I get excited from hearing this, this passion and this excitement um, and just like this coolness in some of these poets. But it just, it didn't feel in sync with like, the soft quietness of what was at the heart of the poem. Like, even if the poem was, like, loud and fast and boisterous, it was like, but at its heart, it's just doing this little thing. And then there's this artifice that just feels sort of, like, flashier. It's and a fancy world, and it feels like we carry some of the fears of the fanciness with 100%, us. 100%, you know? And there was, like, I remember there was a poet at that time uh, named Reeves, and the thing that I really loved about Reeves's work was that he would... He always felt as if like whatever was being said uh, in conversation was in the same manner that he would say things on stage. And I was like, how do you do that? And and so I, I, I started very much like just trying to, I don't know, chip away that coat and quiet myself and center myself. Um, but even with those things aside, that there was an aspect where coming into this space, if I was just sort of like approaching about like, I'm reading this right now for the first time and I don't know what will happen, which is what I want, because like, then perhaps I will be affected by this. <laughs> and if I'm affected by this, then other people will be affected yeah. by seeing another person affected by this. Um, and so that, that started, that wasn't like the original intention, but like by trying to get myself to just like be more myself on stage, it revealed itself. And so that then became a far larger part of like, oh. 
it makes me feel at ease so much as an audience member because you feel so comfortable and it isn't in that like, the a thousand times the sun hath, you know, yes. it's so comfortable. <laughs> it's that thing you were talking about of Reeves getting up because I remember and I will hold this memory of you in my heart watching you perform. It was the first time I ever laughed at poetry. Yes which I never had yeah. because it feels so serious. And I remember laughing and feeling like that, like church laugh feeling. Yeah. We're like, oh, sh like, am I going to get smacked by somebody? Like, oh, am I allowed you to do this? Poetry. <laughs> you laughed at poetry and it felt so good. I mean, that's that's a thing that, that Derek, Derek Brown, like he does super, super well that I always loved about his work. Like when I started being introduced to him was that he would, you know, because he's got like, sometimes in his poems, he's just got like, weird humor like humor where you're like like that that church level you're like my my allowed to funny. laugh at <laughs> was that funny and i think like, it was funny so he, he he does this trick kind of like what you were saying about how him how he started off by like saying you know in this very serious poet voice like he'll do these things that kind of deflate the tension by like making somebody sort of like laugh at a thing that they have to laugh at so that then they feel like they're allowed to laugh at other things or that they're also the allowed to feel. Door, yeah. You know, like it opens the laughter door and it also like opens up the heart chambers. Yeah, and then he like, jacks yeah. you up. He talks, <laughs> go listen to the Derek Brown episode if you have not because he talks about it. Like he is perfecting that he's, on he, purpose. Like, he's so good at that. And that was like a thing I think that was like, oh, the way in which the Derek is sort of playing with you know, expectations that people have when they hear a poem, expectations that people have when they step into a space. He he does a really beautiful, unique job of disarming all those things so that folks can hopefully feasibly just like be existing listening. Tell us because summer is upon us. Poems out of window at sunset. Poems at sunset out of a window. Uh so this was a thing that 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 I've been doing that started up uh, a little more than a year ago, like last March, at uh, birthed out of a conversation between me and my friend Jen. We um, started this thing called Poems at Sunset Out of a Window, and what it is is me reading poems at sunset out of the window of my art studio in Southeast Portland, and it's it's literally just that. And um, yeah, folks show up and throw down their chairs or stand quietly or sit on blankets or the ground and is a thing that didn't know what was going to happen with it. Like I remember that first one, I had no idea who was going to show up. I had been missing what it meant to have a relationship with sharing work to one's local community. Yeah. And also had, you know, since the pandemic had begun was trying to explore what it meant to, to share work in alternative ways, like both with regards to kind of like, how do we do this like safely in, in a pandemic, but also just as an artist, like, being pushed to be like, all right, well, what, what, what are the ways that we could like gather? I mean, or again, I feel like it's a thing that you're so good at is making poetry accessible for people because I've been, and I love it. And you know what, exactly what it is to me, especially as we all know, many musicians, <laughs> it's house party shows. You know yeah. what I mean? Like nothing is the same as when you're younger and you go to a house party yeah. show where you're all crowded in somebody's living room or like a gross basement and people, bands are playing <laughs> and you love it. And it's never the same as like going to a proper exactly. music venue. A big venue yeah. And that's how I felt when I was literally sitting in the street with some strangers, like chubby dog laying on me. And I was so happy. And I was like, this is 
this is the Portland that I love. And which is like, you know, I was just talking with someone yesterday about this, about how like, you know, that was a thing that after like the first few ones, a uh, few folks would come and be like, it felt like the Portland that I that I used to love. And which was, you know, something really, really sweet to hear, but also like something that like felt like very kind of like revealing of just like, oh, well, what are the ways in which we, any of us, all of us can think about like, well, what, what's, what do we want in a city that we live in? Yeah. And do we have a responsibility? And do we have a responsibility? Do we have the capability to build it? And like the, the building of it can happen in like large ways, but it can also happen in like really small ways. Totally. You, you don't know? have to be on city council exactly. to affect change in your community. You can open your window and bring the <laughs> exactly. tools that you have, you which is like, you have cool friends, you have poems. That's and what it. I love we'll about that particular event as well is that it's right. I have a daughter who goes to that school mm-hmm. and sometimes I imagine the poetry sort of diffusing out onto the playground and then all the kids kind of coming in the next oh, day and that. somehow Scooping absorbing it, it. I love it so much. Breathing it in. And even if they weren't there, there's just poetry in the air around them. And that's such it's, a lovely thought. I mean, like... Peak Irish statement. It, <laughs> and it, like, Irish statement. That kind of like funnels back to me because it's like, I'm in that studio space when there's no one on the street and like I'm not doing poems at the window, but there are like... The kids yeah. happening... And like, so over this last year, just kind of looking up and sometimes just watching the fascinating stories and dramas that unfold on the play. And like, there's multiple recesses over the day. And so there's just like constantly, you know, like I remember I was like, I looked up and there was just like some kid running around with a trash can (laughs) over the top part of their body. I hope it wasn't mine. Just, just, just (laughs) jogging along through the yard until at some point some other kid like, ran full force and like threw themselves of course at the kid in the trash can you know like just trash can wars you never played trash, trash can, can wars, wars? come you know? on oscar the grouch irl <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's, it's just been it's, it's 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 been a sweet special thing for me um and particularly to see just like how it's unfolded i love getting to do it i love getting to do it too we'll make sure we direct everybody to your um instagram so they know when to go so they sweet, can be sweet. part of it and if they want to come out to Portland this summer for people who aren't here, get on out here. Why not? A hundred percent. Why not? Uh, Anise, I know I could t- we could talk to you all day about poetry, as it turns out. I know it does actually turn out. <laughs> but we do have to wrap up, although it's not every day we get a poet laureate in our office. Or Miss America. <gasps> or Miss America. <laughs> Miss well, America. I spend every day with Miss America, Eden. Oh. <laughs> She's not talking about me. She's talking oh. about I'm somebody. talking about you. I was, oh. <laughs> I was like, can you imagine she's talking about someone else? Who else am I with all the time? Um, Great cue. But thank you again so much for thank joining us and for sharing your work. I want to let everybody know that they can see your website is at thepianofarm.com. And also, when can we expect the new book to come um, out? The new book, which is called uh, The Tigers They Let Me, I think is out like June 23rd. Something like that. Oh, that's soon. Sometime yeah. in the next like three, four weeks, it'll be out. Woo-hoo! Right, bloody publishing. Right, bloody publishing. Mm-hmm. So keep an eye out for that, um, and also you can follow Anise and also see him post about upcoming shows and videos on his Instagram, which is at the Piano Farm, and follow him on Twitter at Mojgani. And that's it from We Can Print This for today. You can see more information about these episodes, including transcripts, which are a lot of work. So please have a look. And links to things we talked about at wecanprintthis.com 
And also you can check out our Instagram stories at We Can Print This for all the visuals too. We're also on Twitter, of course. We'll see how long this lasts <laughs> at We Can Print This. We do all the socials. We do them all. Um, thank you to our producer, Miranda Schaefer, and to our friend, Dave Depper, for our intro music. This podcast was recorded at the Writer's Block in downtown Portland, Oregon. And big thank you to our third office mate, Rachel Ritchie, for building out the We Can't Print This newsletter template that's now coming your way each month with all the fun bits possible. We'll put some good stuff from Anise in there, too. Yeah, it'll be fun. And if you happen to be a writer with a really great behind the story story or a great story, anything great, please write to us at wecanprintthis at gmail.com. You never know. You could get on. If you would like to go on a date with Anise, please write us. At- <laughs> <laughs> we, can cut, we can cut that. I just wanted to see if you're still paying attention. But also, you know, weirder ways to meet people. There are. We have lovely listeners. I'm sure you do. They're all good looking They're as well. Good looking. Every we single decided. one. All we the decided. Decided. Start sending them. Sending those emails. You Get them in here. <laughs> <laughs>